Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, a new memoir that's an ode to the tumbleweeds and driveway barbecues of Riverside. For them, Riverside was the promised land. Orange groves, munitions work during World War II and the ability to buy a small wood frame house. Plus, what it's like when your partner gets Alzheimer's in their 50s. By the time she got the diagnosis, she was far enough along she didn't understand what it meant. And originally, we actually decided that we weren't going to tell her what, it, what the diagnosis was. But first, a young mariachi musician from the Central Valley heads to Harvard. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. The voice of Anaí Adina Morales, an 18-year-old mariachi musician from the Central Valley town of Delano. She's just released her first album, Espérame en el Cielo, and she's won a number of competitions for voice, violin, and trumpet including the Shining Star Award at the highly competitive Battle of the Mariachis in San Juan Capistrano. She's starting at Harvard this fall, just as her album is making its debut. And we're talking to her from the campus radio station at Harvard. Hi there, Anai. Hi. So you come from a musical family. Your parents are both mariachi musicians. Your dad played in some of the most famous mariachi groups in the world, Mariachi Los Camperos, Mariachi Sol de Mexico. And now your family teaches music to kids at a studio in Delano. Tell me about what it was like to grow up in such a musical family. I'm very grateful that I grew up in that household. And it kept me very close to my culture. And I'm very grateful for that, especially, you know, being so so far from home now. And I know that I can easily connect to my family and and my, my Mexican culture just by singing a mariachi song. The title track from your album, Espérame en el Cielo, it's one of several that you perform with other youth musicians on this album including Mariachi Mestizo, which is where you got your start. It's a group that your parents founded. And you guys have actually played at Carnegie Hall and the Kennedy Center. 
What do you think that playing mariachi music gives to young people from places like Delano or the Central Valley? Obviously, Delano is a community of Mexican immigrants, and there's also a lot of Filipino culture there. And I think mariachi in a community like that definitely gives kids a creative outlet and definitely keeps them out of the sort of gang violence that's present in that community. And um, it's very nurturing to their cultural backgrounds, I think. And a lot of kids at the studio enroll in the studio because their grandparents or their parents want them to play that music or their grandparents and parents were mariachis. You know, songs like this are usually performed by much older musicians, you know, singing about love and heartbreak, and, and usually they're male mariachis, like in this version by Pedro Vargas. En el cielo, si es que te vas I don't think there should ever um, be sort of like these stereotypes about who can sing what. I'm lucky to have grown up in a household where my dad was the only male, so my family is full of super strong women, and I also think that was important in me feeling confident to sing whatever I wanted. And also, you know, the stories that these songs tell about falling in love and getting your heart broken and dying and joining your lover in heaven. Like, definitely they're very dramatic stories and I think I'm a dramatic person. So I think they, they fit well with my personality, but also um, I feel like they're all narratives that people can relate to. You've even got one song on this album, Cancion Mixteca, where you sing in Mixteco, which is one of the indigenous languages of Oaxaca. It's a place a lot of farm workers in the Central Valley come from. Did you have to learn Mixteco for that song? I am definitely not fluent in Mixteco, so you can hear like my little accent in there at times, or maybe some mispronunciations. <laughs> So you're starting your freshman year at Harvard right now. It's a big leap from Delano. What are you hoping to study? Right now, the goal is to become a doctor and go back to the Valley and offer them the holistic and affordable medical services that they've been deprived of forever. I definitely want to continue pursuing music, but more as a hobby. I feel like that might be a more practical route to take in terms of a career. Well, your parents are both musicians. Are they discouraging you from following that path? They've been nothing but supportive of my music aspirations, but I've also seen how difficult it can be when, you know, your sole source of income is how many gigs you can get on one weekend. And I want to, you know, help my family with any financial burdens they have once I graduate and get a job. That's Anaí Adina Morales. She's a mariachi musician from the Central Valley, and she's just released her first album, Espérame en el Cielo. 
She spoke with us from Harvard, where she's starting her first year. Thanks, Anai, for talking with us. Thank you. Era el canario un primor, y era su dueño un pequeño que velaba con empeño. And now we're going to turn to a tough topic. It's something a lot of Californians are dealing with, caring for loved ones who have Alzheimer's or dementia. A lot of the daily care that dementia patients need isn't covered by regular insurance, so families have to step in themselves. Right now, there are a million caregivers in the state for Alzheimer's patients alone. And dementia doesn't just affect the elderly. Today, we're going to follow the parallel stories of two California caregivers. They were both forced into early retirement when their spouses were diagnosed in their 50s. John Lucas's wife, Sharon, has been living with Alzheimer's for almost a decade. She can no longer speak, and he had to place her in a care facility six years ago. In my case, over the six years, I have now spent out of my pocket $550,000. Pat Martin lost her husband, Bill, to dementia. I was totally unaware. I had no idea that there wasn't any kind of support for this. Now John and Pat are both starting over and figuring out how to rechart their futures. It's been a painful journey, but in the process, something unexpected happened. My name is John Lucas. I grew up in Southern California in a city called Downey. We are currently at Cedar Creek in Los Gatos, which is a Alzheimer's and dementia care facility. Sharon is also from the same city, Downey. We met in high school, so we were high school sweethearts. She asked me to Sadie Hawkins dance when I was 16 years old. So, yeah, high school sweetheart. Very funny person, very lively. She continued with that personality all throughout her life until the disease hit her. Hi, I'm Pat Martin, and I'm from Fremont, California, and we're sitting in my living room. One of the things, and, and I've learned this now that I'm on the other side of this thing, is that caregivers in this situation really do believe, I can do it myself. Bill had an atypical form of Alzheimer's disease, which is a frontotemporal dementia. So the first thing that started showing up for Bill was his speech. My daughter started noticing things too, and so eventually they said, Dad, I think you need to take Mom in to, to see someone. That was a very hard conversation because when I told her, I told my wife, I want to take you into the doctor because you have a memory problem. She got very resistive to it and was in denial. And she thought I was trying to get rid of her and that I thought she was crazy. She was 55 when they started that process. He was having some difficulty at work as well. And so he went to see a neurologist. And uh, the neurologist said, you know, it's probably stress. You know, Bill was in his early 50s at this time. I said, well, you know, he's just not the same person. He kind of apathy, not, you know, not interest in life. And they actually, he actually said to me at that time, at that interview, I'll never forget this. They actually said, are you sure it's not you? Could this be menopause or something that's making you oversensitive to him? So I, 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 at the time, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. By the time she got the diagnosis, she was far enough along she didn't understand what it meant. And originally, we actually decided that we weren't going to tell her what, it, what the diagnosis was because she just wasn't going to understand it. It was going to be a hard conversation. After about three months or two or three months of that, it was, it was gut-wrenching to us to try to keep it a secret. 
and it didn't seem fair to her. So uh, Thanksgiving weekend, my daughters came home, we sat her down on the couch and we, and we had that discussion with her that she had Alzheimer's disease and she had about eight or 10 years on average to live. We all had a big cry. Five minutes later, sure enough, she had forgotten it and we moved on, but we felt better that we'd had the conversation at least. When he finally got so bad that the dementia was moving into other areas of his brain, that he finally got diagnosed with primary progressive aphasia, which is a type of frontotemporal dementia. He had retired by that point because he wasn't able to work. So he didn't really retire with disability. And uh, I had to retire at age 49 to take care of him. As the 24-7 caregiver for her, at first it just starts out keeping her entertained making meals for her, doing all the cleaning, all the bill paying, whatever. But then it goes beyond that. She started to not be able to sleep at night. Time kind of flip-flopped on her. So I was starting to lose sleep. I cordoned off the house such that she could be safe in an area walking around at night while I tried to get some sleep. At the same time, I was going to a support group and they were all telling me, you know, you gotta be thinking about placing her. You know, and I was trying to trying to be the hero and not have to do that. And for me, it reached a breaking point. Our daughter, Liz, was playing college soccer, and Bill had been her coach all through her youth, and we had nothing else to do, so I just made sure we went to every one of her college games, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and so did Bill. But as his disease started progressing, we were at a game in her senior year, and Bill, in the middle of the game, got up and went out on the field. I had to get two men to pull him off the field. We had to take him out and basically close a chain link fence. I think he thought he was the coach. And that's when I realized that this is more than I can do. Eventually, I had to place Bill in a memory care facility. None of that is covered by any kind of insurance. So probably spent a little over $300,000 on his care. We were lucky. We had the money to be able to do that. Many people don't have those kind of means. My retirement nest egg, some inheritance I got, and currently some social, I've taken, started taking social security early so they can help pay for it. And I've uh, moved out of my house and I'm renting it out to try to help with the costs. So we have programs all day long from entertainment, uh, games, reading, trivia stuff. And they just try, the ones that they can keep active, they try to keep them active. A lot of them just sit around sleeping. <laughs> and uh, so this is Sharon here. Hi, Kim. Hi, Sharon. How are you today? You look very nice today. She's forgotten how to use the doors, so she can't get out a door unless somebody takes her off. Yeah, she quit talking about it. Uh, probably a year and a half ago, something like that. Try some candies. Got your favorite M&Ms. Chocolate freak. <laughs> she has a little hard time get, finding them in my hand. Sharon, want a candy? Look what I brought you. That's kind of how the day is spent. Want one more? Huh? was the hardest decision I've ever made. And it was the most amazing feeling coming out of here. All the emotions that hit, freedom, guilt, 
sadness, joy, all of it coming down all at once. I just sat out in that parking lot for about 15 minutes and cried. And then I went home and started living my life again. I'm still her caregiver here, uh, but I've, I've moved on. John is still in the, in the midst of the journey with Sharon, and I understand that that journey is very difficult. I mean, he has a foot in two different worlds right now, and I can be somebody that he can, he can say anything to. So we actually met through the advocacy program. Uh, we were both going out for our first, they call it a forum, advocacy forum in Washington, D.C., so when we got back from the forum, we had become friends on Facebook. Um, we set up a, a get-to-know-you date at a coffee place uh, in Santana Row. And we spent three hours talking to each other. The crowd faded away. We forgot we were even sitting in a coffee house. It was a magical three hours. And after that, we just started dating more, and um, we fell in love. And you know, that's been three years now. We talk about the fact we, we, we really are living life for four people because Bill and Sharon, they got robbed. I envision uh, marrying Pat, and uh, we'll have a big celebration of life for Sharon at some point, and I, I hope that all of her friends and family come. It's really a celebration of life, Then people have gone through this loss and grief process for so long with Sharon that I think it's gonna be a big relief to everyone once she's, once she's not suffering anymore. Sharon Lucas was admitted to hospice this month. John and Pat are asking Congress for more funding for Alzheimer's research, more support for caregivers and early detection programs. And in October, they'll be side-by-side side at the Silicon Valley Walk to End Alzheimer's. That piece was produced by Mary Franklin Harvin. And now to a new book that's a love letter to Riverside and the Inland Empire. It's by Susan Strait, who grew up there and now is a professor of creative writing at UC Riverside. She's best known for her fiction. She was a National Book Award finalist for her novel High Wire Moon. But now she's come out with a new memoir called In the Country of Women. It explores the stories of six generations of women in her family, both the violence they survived and their tenacity in building a future for their families here in California. Hi, Susan. Hi. I love California Report. This is really nice. <laughs> well, your book is about family. It's about both blood family and chosen family and the very multiracial family that your three daughters have grown up in. And it's kind of a letter to your daughters, kind of a history lesson about these strong women that they're descended from. Um, who all, in some ways, ended up in Riverside. For them, Riverside was the promised land. Orange groves, munitions work during World War II, and the ability to buy a small wood frame house. I'd like to ask you to read a passage from the beginning of your book where you lay out some of those various origins of the women that you're writing about. In the country of women, we have maps and threads of kin some people find hard to believe. The women could not have dreamed that in this promised land, we would still have bullets and fear and murder, fracture and derision and assault, sharp and revived. I was born here, and I'm still here, and I didn't leave, which doesn't feel very heroic. 
You three, my daughters, have laughed at me for looking out the kitchen window of our house toward the hospital where I was born, where your father was born, where you were born. My daily life is a five-mile radius of memory and work and family. You, you three daughters, know this in your genes. You love only orange blossom honey because you grew up with that scent and those flowers, that fruit and those bees. You long for Santa Ana winds and sunflowers, tumbleweeds and the laughter of people eating at long unfolded tables in a driveway. We bury descendants of the women and we serve funeral repasts in church halls built by some of California's black pioneers. The women in our family are everything, African-American, Mexican-American, Cherokee and Creek, Swiss, Irish, English, French and Filipino, Samoan and Haitian, and some of their heritage remains a mystery. You write about your own family, your mom, who's an immigrant from Switzerland, uh, your father's family. I mean, this is also a book about class and about growing up, for you, white working class. My mom was working in the fields when she was 15 on a farm, and her stepmother and father decided they were going to go to Florida, and my mom ran away. She went to work um, for a family. She was a babysitter, and then at night she worked in a diner that served the Oshawa GM plant. She taught herself perfect English by listening to Vin Scully do Dodger broadcasts. Uh, She went back to junior college when she was 40 and I was 12. That was a big deal, watching her get her AA degree. This is a book that's basically a letter to your daughters who are African-American from a white mom. Were you worried about writing about race as a white woman? Was that a complicated journey for you to take? Not particularly. At our family reunion, for example, there were 150 people and I was the only white person. And people always tell white people jokes around me. They say, we forgot about you. I I think for my kids, the most important thing is that we have this giant family on both sides. They have cousins who are Haitian, Samoan, Mexican, and African American. So in the crucible of our family, race is lesser than family loyalty and survival. So it was more writing about family and race as it's refracted through the lens of the wider um, sense of American uh, identity. How do people look at a place like ours, and how do people look at a family like ours? James Baldwin was your teacher in graduate school in the early 1980s, and, and you write about how he inspired you to write about home, about the place you knew best. James Baldwin, the first day in class, was so profound and the things he said meant so much to me, but I was afraid to talk to him. And then afterwards, his driver, whose name was uh, Rico, and his secretary, whose name was Skip, they were probably 27 or so, and they saw Dwayne, my husband, who was 6'4", and those guys were both 6'2", and they said, oh my gosh, who's this? We want to play basketball with you. So after that, the three of them would play basketball, and James Baldwin and I would sit in his rental house, which was quite beautiful, and talk about fiction. He said to me, you have to write about home. You must write about this place where you two come from. And that changed everything for me. And here you are bringing that advice full circle, right? I mean, this is really, this book does that in a very different way as a memoir than the fiction that you've written. He was always writing about home. This thought that I had about who we are and what it means to grow up in a place like Riverside, what it means to be a Californian, 
that was just always intrinsically part of what I wanted to write about. Susan Strait, thank you so much for talking with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Susan Strait's new book is In the Country of Women. Now it's time for another Letter to My California Dreamer. We've been asking you to write a letter to your family's first Californian, that person who first came to the Golden State with a dream. This week's letter comes from listener Gary Crandall, and it's to his grandfather, Alfred C. Nelson. Gary remembers his childhood spent on his grandfather's farm in Lake County. And today, he says, those farming traditions are deeply rooted in his family's DNA. Dear Grandpa, in 1920, as a valedictorian of your high school class, you realized you were destined for more than your family's South Dakota farm. In spite of your first-generation Danish father's wishes, you and your brother hit the road for California. Once you arrived in California, you enrolled at UC Berkeley. You met my grandmother Eunice, fell in love, and married her. Once you started having kids, you realized you needed a dependable job that paid well. Eventually, you became an underwriter for Mutual of New York Life Insurance. You became a salesman for the company, embodying values of integrity and genuine concern for your customers. So, contrary to your father's expectations, you had become a success. I remember days spent in your office playing cribbage with my cousins and me. Plaques and trophies honoring your professional achievement cluttered the desk and filing cabinets. And still, perhaps surprisingly, there was a longing for the farm. The old maxim was true. You could take the boy out of the farm, but you couldn't take the farm out of the boy. So you bought a 200-acre walnut farm in Lake County that you referred to as the ranch. Despite your high-powered, time-consuming job, You went back up to the ranch each weekend. Soon my cousins and I began to come up and help with the work. Throughout my childhood and teenage years, I spent many hours tilling around walnut trees, killing rattlesnakes, and pruning off the water sprouts at the base of the trees. The agricultural DNA in the family runs deep for some of us. Each weekday, I drive up the same roads that led to the ranch on my way to my job as head gardener at a Napa estate. And through my work as a documentary filmmaker, I chronicled the cycling trip I took down Highway 1, visiting gardens and teaching farms along the way. Grandpa, though you were never one for flowery speech, you taught me the wisdom contained in the Khalil Gibran quote, Work is love made visible. Like you, I have discovered the emotionally therapeutic aspects of working and growing in the soil. With love and growth, Gary. Gary Crandall's letter to his grandfather. We want to know about the first person in your family who came to California with a dream. We've got a quick form on our website, californiareport.org.
And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. We'd love to hear your feedback on our show. Send us a note at calreport at kqed.org. You can also listen to all of our shows if you subscribe to our podcast, The California Report Magazine. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And we had additional engineering this week from Rob Spate and Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleone. Our team also includes Asala Sanapur, Olivia Allen Price, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from California Earthquake Authority, a not-for-profit offering earthquake insurance to help Californians protect their financial futures. For more information, go to earthquakeauthority.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 